You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. Hey, and welcome back to another episode of the Ancestral Elements Podcast. Episode 19, Forgotten Concepts in Nutrition, Building the Blood. This week we are going to dive deep into how to build the blood with nutrients, and not only how to keep the blood built and supplied with adequate nutrition, but what that even means and what that looks like on a physiological level. What do you think of when people talk about blood? Do you think of it as a medium that kind of carries nutrition and chemicals and it kind of gets into every single tissue and supplies nutrients? Or do you think of it just as kind of this red liquid running through your veins and into your heart? Blood is probably one of the most complex things compositionally in the body. And I know that we've discussed blood a little bit on this podcast, but I want to take a really, really hard look at this. And I want to start with metabolism. And I want to start with the breakdown of food that ultimately gets into the bloodstream and gets into the tissues. Because really, that's the start of this whole process. It's about the food that you're eating, breaking down and metabolizing into these products that get shuttled into the blood that supply your body with nutrition. And there can be a lot of things that either go right or go wrong during that process. So we're not only going to be talking about just nutrients in the blood, but how they get into the bloodstream in general, and then what that means for you as an individual on a daily basis. Okay, so metabolism or digestion. Digestion starts the minute you put food in your mouth and start chewing it up, start masticating, then the saliva or the amylase, that enzyme that's in your saliva, starts breaking food down. Amylase is an enzyme that starts catalyzing a reaction with carbohydrates, with maltose and galactose. You then swallow your food, and it runs down the esophagus. And then it hits kind of a high-pressure area called the esophageal sphincter. And it basically, it's a valve, more or less, that will close as soon as the food gets down past it, so it doesn't come back up into your mouth. And there's bacteria actually in the esophagus as well, a small amount that further assist in digestion as it reaches the stomach. And once it hits the stomach, that mass of food starts getting kind of hydrolyzed by HCL or hydrochloric acid. And you, in a healthy individual, you will have really high HCL in the stomach. You don't want weak stomach acid because weak stomach acid will usually lead to a reflux or what's called acid reflux or GERD. Um, And so the higher the stomach acid, the better breakdown of that food. And you also have digestive enzymes in the stomach called pepsin. So pepsin, again, catalyzes reactions to further extract nutrients from the food. So you probably have heard of pepsin as an antacid, like Pepsin AD is, I think, the brand name that is still kind of used. 
And what that does is that you get those extra enzymes in the stomach and it assists in the breakdown because you don't want unbroken down food trying to pass into the small intestine or sitting in the stomach because it'll try to, the body tries to get that stuff out. You see what I mean? So you'll get gassy, you'll get uh, bloated feeling. And so pepsin is an enzyme in there that will continue to break that stuff down. And the stomach also creates this churning of food as it breaks down. So it starts to mix with gastric juices that get released from the liver, the gallbladder, and the pancreas. Those are three organs that assist in that whole metabolism process. The liver produces bile, remember, and then it gets stored in the gallbladder. So the gallbladder will dump those bile products into the duodenum or the small intestine right below the stomach. And then the pancreas will also release pancreatic enzymes to, again, further assist in the breakdown of nutrients. And so if the liver is compromised, if the pancreas is compromised, or if the gallbladder is compromised, then you're already not getting efficient breakdown of nutrients. Or one organ or one system is going to have to work a lot harder to kind of fill in that void. There's an interesting thing that happens with a neuropeptide called CCK that interacts with the pancreas and controls its secretions, and it acts as a satiety type of signaling hormone. And I bring CCK up because already you have hormones that are kind of controlling the mechanisms of digestion as soon as they hit the small intestine. And not much has happened yet in this process, but already there's hormonal control, which we'll get into in more detail later on. But I wanted to point that out before we move on. All right, so the small intestine, this is where all the magic happens. Most of your digestion and nutrient uptake and breakdown happens in the small intestine. The enzymes that are created by the liver, pancreas, and gallbladder. So I mentioned pepsin that's made in the stomach. You also have trypsin in the pancreas. You have pancreatic lipase, ribonuclease, and deoxyribonuclease. So all of those mentioned are made in the pancreas. So the pancreas has a lot to do with these enzymes that get dumped into the small intestine. So it can start to really break down the nutrients that are sitting in the small intestine after they leave the stomach. And this is when nutrients move to the villi or these kind of finger-like tubules that hook up with the capillaries and shuttle nutrients into the bloodstream. So this is that kind of initial start. And most of your food, most of the nutrients will be kind of broken down in the small intestine. Now, the large intestine, that contains the rectum, the colon would be another name for the large intestine. That contains most of your microbiome. And the microbiome is a bit of a catch-all term that is being thrown around a lot these days. And don't get me wrong, the microbiome actually starts in the mouth. It's everything that I've just described would comprise this kind of catch-all term of microbiome. So, but the reason they focus on the large intestine and the colon is because that's where a lot of the bacteria is housed in the body. But really the microbiome, it starts in the mouth. You have bacteria, again, in your mouth. You have enzymes in the mouth. You have bacteria in the esophagus that we talked about. You have it everywhere. You have it in the small intestine as well. So you can't just focus on the colon. Um... And then you also, it's not just about bacteria. 
you have f- essentially five things that are making up the microbiome or the GI tract, which are number one would be bacteria, but then you have fungi, you have viruses, you have protists, and you have archaea. And all of these interact with one another to assist in nutrient absorption and releasing nutrients from the food that you're digesting. So if you have dysbiosis of any of these, your nutrient absorption in the blood is going to be compromised. And that's an important thing to remember. So when we're talking about the microbiome, we're talking about metabolites that end up in the blood or amino acids that get broken down into their very tiny little parts called metabolites. And that's what the blood is primarily comprised of or built from, are these metabolites. And that's a good way to measure whether or not you're getting good nutrient absorption is the blood. That's why you do blood tests. Stool tests can be good, but unless you're looking for something very specific in the stool, it's not, in my opinion, it's not as effective at measuring your overall health than it would be to measure the metabolites in the blood because that's what gets into the tissue. The stool is the end result of the metabolites. That's the waste products of metabolites and urine, for that matter, is the same. They're waste products. And so if you're just going to measure the waste products, you're missing a ton of information. So building the blood really becomes about how your microbiome is interacting with the food that you're putting in your body, and then how that met- those metabolites are getting into the blood from the microbiome. Is this making sense? So what we're realizing is the microbiome has a gigantic job of creating metabolites that regulate our homeostasis in our body, that regulate everything from neurotransmitters to hormones. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you two just very easy examples so you kind of get an understanding of what I'm talking about here. So amino acids, you have nine essential amino acids, meaning you have to eat them in order for them to be present in your body. I'll give you an example of tryptophan. So tryptophan is an essential amino acid. You might know of tryptophan because of turkey at Thanksgiving, and a lot of people think it makes you sleepy, which it actually doesn't. But tryptophan is an amino acid that gets broken down into vitamin B3 or niacin, which continues to get broken down into 5-HP or 5-HTP. You'll see it as sometimes. And then 5-HTP gets broken down into melatonin. And tryptophan also gets broken down into serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter. They thought for a long time serotonin was produced in the brain, which it is in small amounts, but over 70% of it is produced in the gut. And then it gets shuttled through the cerebral spinal fluid and up into the brain. It crosses the blood-brain barrier. So, and it's bacteria that produces serotonin and melatonin. It's bacteria that helps that entire process of breaking down that amino acid tryptophan. So if you don't have enough tryptophan, you can end up with serotonin deficiencies in the brain. And that's why with something like an SSRI drug, so a SSRI is a 
serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It inhibits the serotonin levels in the body. It keeps it in the brain, essentially. And that's why a lot of side effects you can get with SSRIs are digestive issues. A lot of times you lose weight, you have a lack of hunger, you get constipation or diarrhea. There's a lot of um, pretty nasty side effects with SSRIs. Another example is an essential amino acid called phenylalanine. Phenylalanine is extremely important in the body. It breaks down into tyrosine, which is another amino acid. It's just non-essential. But tyrosine breaks down to dopamine and norepinephrine. So dopamine, again, is a neurotransmitter that is found in the brain. Norepinephrine, also found in the brain, but released under stress mechanisms in the body. So you might know of epinephrine. Norepinephrine is a close relative to epinephrine. It gets released kind of continuously into the body, though. It keeps you kind of clear and focused, whereas epinephrine or adrenaline only gets released by the adrenals under a flight or fight response, under a stress response. Norepinephrine is kind of continuously released into the body. And so without this amino acid of phenylalanine, you could end up with some hormone balances, basically, or neurotransmitter chemistry that is not quite right. So these amino acids are literally not only just the building blocks for protein, but the building blocks for regulating the blood and regulating your tissues, because the blood is what drives the nutrients to the tissues, right? Whether it's the brain or the liver or the gallbladder or the pancreas or the spleen or the adrenals, the kidneys, whatever organ it is, blood has to be the carrier for these metabolites, for these broken down amino acids. And the brain, it's a little bit different because you have the blood-brain barrier and that's a selective permeability of solutes that get into the brain. But you understand what I'm saying. I mean, blood is a key component and therefore the building of that blood becomes crucial to regulating everything from your microbiome to metabolism. And again, it's not just the bacteria. You also have viruses and fungi and protist and archaea that are assisting that bacteria with making neurotransmitters, with making these end metabolites that end up in the blood. And I want to explore that quite a bit in this because there's a lot of research on bacteria because they're easier to study, but there's not a lot on the interaction of viruses and what that does, what that creates as metabolites. And really what it looks like from what we know of right now, viruses tend to assist and enhance bacteria that help with metabolite production that gets into the blood. So they kind of supercharge the bacteria, it seems. If you've been in the health world, especially the last 10 or so years, or 15 years maybe, you'll hear sometimes people talking about candida overgrowth. Candida is actually a fungi, um, and candida helps the breakdown of glucose and sugars into the blood. You want candida. People talk about candida overgrowth all the time, which some people might have, but it's hard to tell. Um, There's a little bit of research on that, but that's just one fungi that ends up in the microbiome 
and, and similar to viruses, fungi tend to assist the bacteria in this breakdown of metabolites. But they also do their own breaking down. See, viruses don't break things down, whereas fungi do. I mean, think about mushrooms and how they break down things on the earth. Well, they're going to be doing similar things in your body. Just because in their body doesn't mean they're going to be hindered in their function necessarily. It's obviously going to look a little bit different, but essentially it's the same. You, you're creating cellular respiration and fungi are doing cellular respiration. So in the microbiome, they're doing a side-by-side -side job with the bacteria. Protists are really fascinating too. We've talked about protists on this podcast before. Remember, it's a hybrid species of plant and algae, and that also sits in the gut in a small amount in the microbiome, but it's there, and there's not a ton of research on it, but again, it has some synergenic kind of effect going on. It'll be interesting to see in the coming years if that becomes kind of a interest in the field of metabolomics. See, this study is basically the, the area of study is called metabolomics. So basically the study of metabolism, right? But there's, I mean, there's so much there, right? Again, the focus has been on bacteria, but these other things are very fascinating, which is why I kind of devised this approach to an elemental nutrition. So this five kingdom approach that I approach nutrition with, where you're covering all of the species, you're covering plant, animal, fungi, bacteria, protist. All of those are needed for a healthy microbiome and needed to build the blood. That's why I'm sitting here doing this, because it's this type of information that needs to get out there. And I would hate it if the only thing significantly studied was bacteria, because that's a piece, but it's just a piece. These other things are very important as well. The fact that you have algae components sitting in your gut is pretty fascinating, and it's something not many people are really talking about. They're there for a reason, right? These aren't things that just come and go. These things that are constant in the microbiome, and they're working with the microbiome. They're working with viruses, bacteria, fungi, right? All of these things are working together in a kind of community effort to give you metabolites into the blood. So this whole industry that's based around prebiotics and probiotics, right? Man, there's a lot more than just bacteria in the microbiome. I would doubt it if you ever could buy a supplement containing fragments of dead viruses. <laughs> but, you know, it's an interesting thought because they're just as important to the microbiome as bacteria. Well, I don't want to compare the two because that's not fair because that's probably not actually true. But they're vitally important to the microbiome. Let's put it that way. As are all of the other species that are found in the microbiome. So this idea of building the blood with these end metabolites becomes really interesting and really, really foundational to your nutrition. If you're eating good food, and a well-balanced diet from the five kingdoms of life, this is going to make your nutrition have a leg up on just about everybody. The more you can limit derivatives of 
foods or supplements or medication for that matter that are going into your body, the better. Because a derivative, you're bypassing chains of enzymatic reactions and digestion and breakdown. Does that make sense? So just like you could take a phenylalanine supplement as an amino acid, you could also take a tyrosine supplement. Or just like you could take melatonin, you could take a 5-HTP supplement. So melatonin is probably an easier example of those two, but melatonin, if you were to take that long term, year after year, your body would stop producing melatonin. Your body produces melatonin when the sun goes down. That's what infrared light does. So if you stare at a fire, your body starts to produce melatonin. If you take a melatonin supplement, then your body stops producing it in adequate amounts and you don't sleep well. Your quality of sleep actually gets diminished if you stop taking melatonin. Whereas if you take 5-HTP, that's a precursor to melatonin, meaning that your body has to synthesize that down into melatonin. So it actually does a better job than just taking the melatonin, and you don't, your body doesn't become quite as dependent on it because it needs an enzymatic breakdown of that nutrient to get to melatonin. But better yet, you should just be eating more tryptophan because then you're getting benefits of not only the tryptophan amino acid, but of niacin, of 5-HTP, and melatonin, right? So unless your metabolism is extremely altered and extremely unhealthy and compromised, your body should be able to do that. Your body should be able to break down basic amino acids into metabolites. And if it can't, you've got some major nutrient deficiencies that you need to deal with. And you may need to get a little more extreme if that's the case. Because the worse the, the GI tract is and the microbiome is, the more extreme you may have to get. Have you ever wondered why probiotics or prebiotics seem to work really well for some people, but yet in others they have zero to little effect, or in some cases cause even more issue? That's most likely because the gut isn't just, the microbiome isn't just bacteria, <laughs> like we've been talking about. So if any other Viruses, fungi, protist, archaea are out of balance, then adding more bacteria in to a system that doesn't have a bacteria issue maybe isn't the smartest thing. Then you take something like antivirals or antibiotics or antifungal medications, and that further is going to cause some microbiome dysbiosis. It's going to cause some GI issues. And if you're not regularly thinking about what is colonizing your gut, you may end up missing a lot of valuable nutrients that can really start to affect the blood and the organs 
of your entire body. So this idea about repopulating the gut after antibiotics, that may be when probiotics or prebiotics are useful. That's why I talk so much about getting out into a natural environment. Because once you start doing that, you're picking up bacteria. You're picking up viruses. You're picking up archaea, fungi. You're getting protists in your diet, right? All of these matter in the microbiome, that is, and to the overall metabolites that end up in the blood. Again, this is how you build the blood. You start with proper amino acids from protein sources, especially if it's wild, it's going to be easier for the body because it knows how to deal with it. Things like game meats, wild fish, anything like that. And you're going to be getting different bacteria from those because they've been on a natural landscape picking up everything that you would be picking up. You see what I'm saying? They're not using antibiotics to treat those animals. They're not using fungicides and herbicides and pesticides for those plants. Is this starting to make sense? Okay. So you're picking up vastly more species in a wild environment and getting plants and animals off of that wild environment than you would in a factory farm or a monocrop agriculture situation. Because those situations, they tend to contain anti-nutrients. So things that don't give you any nutrition, that rather take away from your nutrition, because usually they will bind to something and cause a toxic environment in the body, and the immune system has to try to deal with that, right? So the more you can get away from this kind of processed reductionist derivative kind of approach to nutrition that we've been on the last 150 years or so, the better off your body is going to be, period. And that can be seen and measured now with blood metabolites. You can get that measured. So really, I mean, this is where my nutrition kind of is at. And this is kind of where I'm coming from when I talk about all of these concepts that I've covered. It ends up in the blood. If the blood is void of vital metabolites, then it will affect the body. It may not affect it right away. It may take years, but it will lead to ill health and poor outcomes. That's kind of a guarantee. And the thing with building the blood and keeping the blood built with whether it's foods or different types of whole food supplements, which is what I always recommend if you're going to do a supplement, make sure it's a whole food based supplement, is it takes time and it takes keeping it in the blood, keeping those things circulating, right? If you're going to take, let's say, a liver supplement, for example, because you're anemic and have low iron levels, that takes quite a bit of time to build your iron levels with liver. But it's actually one of the best ways to do it because you're getting other enzymes and coenzymes and cofactors in there that help these end result metabolites get into the blood. Because we could play this game of juggling single nutrients around in the body and measuring single nutrients all day long. And that's going to go up and down depending on time of year, depending on your age, your mood, all of it. So when you start from an initial source, especially an initial food source, then you're going to end up supplying that whole metabolism chain and it's going to be more beneficial to your body than if you were just trying to shovel in iron supplements. Are you with me on that? It's going to be a lot better for your body. It's going to be a lot better for you on a cellular level, on a blood level, on a tissue level than just trying to 
battle a single nutrient with a single supplement. And then you look at medications and how fast they work and how effective they are. But their efficacy is with a cost. It comes with a price. And that price is side effects and occasionally ill health or death, right? How many times have you been watching a drug commercial and they say it could result in death? Let's look at something like warfarin, which is a blood thinner. It essentially, it used to be derived from rat poison. It's a synthetic derivative that they use to thin the blood when you have clotting issues or heart issues. In Mexico, they use what's called Mexican vanilla. It's not actually vanilla. It comes from a tonka tree, and it, it comes from the beans of that tree. It's in the pea family, as in pea plant, and it's an extract that they put in small amounts into food, but it tastes like vanilla. It's an analog of vanilla, ah, and they put it into drinks and such, but it's a natural warfarin drive substance. And the FDA banned that, I think back in the 50s, if I remember right. But that's a natural compound that they could have easily derived some medication from and probably ended up with some less side effects, but they chose a synthetic version because they could patent it. And you see that with medications and whether it's antivirals or, you know, over-the-counter stuff. Um, that's a pretty common occurrence where a lot of times there are some natural analogs that have either traditionally been used or are used in other countries um, instead of full synthetic compound. Because historically, you didn't have drug companies, right? You didn't have a pharmacy. You had to use the natural environment as your pharmacy. And that's the way we're biologically adapted and the way our body is able to take in nutrients and utilize those different types of things, of medicinal compounds. And that's where food being a mechanism of medicine and providing medicinal value is so important because it can. And a lot of times it can be really, really effective. You see that in traditional Chinese medicine and the use of different medicinals that you don't necessarily want to use all the time because you could throw the body out of balance, but you can use in a limited amount occasionally and it will bring your body back into homeostasis, back into balance. And there's a lot of traditional Chinese herbs that are banned in Western cultures. Um, and a lot of them are highly, highly effective. But usually there's some competition involved with drug companies where things get a bit, uh, a bit messy. And sometimes the applications we have for them just aren't right in our Western kind of paradigm of medicine. It just doesn't work well because we're pretty unhealthy. And a lot of times there ends up being drug interactions, you know, that are unattended consequences of taking medicinal foods. And that's something to really be mindful of. If you're on a bunch of medication and you're really trying to alter your diet, um, start with things that are very adaptable to the diet. So adaptogens. Start with things that um, aren't going to throw your body out of balance quickly, that you can take on a daily basis to slowly build the blood. If you're a healthy individual and you're not on any medications and you're relatively healthy, then you probably won't need to go to a more extreme route, you know, with some of these kind of heavier drug com compounds that are derived from usually plants. 
But if you do for some reason, you're typically, at least you don't have to worry about kind of bad interactions with medications that you're currently taking. You see that in the fungal or, or even the lichen world as well, where they're starting to kind of play with different lichens for medicinal treatments and fungi for medicinal treatments. The false turkey tail is another interesting mushroom. Tresversicolor is the classification it falls under. Turkey tail is used as a medicinal, medicinal mushroom all the time, and it's very effective. But false turkey tail was historically used in North America, and it also has a blood thinning effect, so you can hemorrhage if you take too much. And there's pretty good documentation and historical accounts on native cultures using this false turkey tail. Um, and it grows everywhere around here, around me. Um, it's pretty common. And you'll see kind of a, a coloring of a turkey tail mushroom, but it's not an actual turkey tail. It's, um, yeah, so there's things like that in nature, right? You can always derive heavier compounds out of plants. You can derive medicinal compounds. You know, aspirin is a, another example, you know, from willow or birch. Um, and you get kind of a, a little bit of a blood thinning mechanism going on from what's called salicylic acid. So yeah, really what I'm saying is anytime you can try to utilize a more natural substance that hasn't been ultra synthesized down into a very reductionist compound, when you start messing with single compounds and putting those into the body without cofactors, without other compounds, then it can have a profound effect on the way that your body deals with it. So anytime you can get a whole complete food with its diverse compounds, it's going to go a lot farther in your body because your body's going to have to internalize all of it. Your body's going to have to enzymatically break it down into its usable parts. And that's going to feed the bacteria or the protists or the viruses or the archaea, and it's going to end up in the blood. And it's going to create a different relationship with the microbiome than just a straight synthetic would. You know, and it's easy to forget that the microbiome is not just about the immune system. It's about regulating neurotransmitters, regulating the central nervous system, regulating chemical messengers that create hormonal cascades. So this is really the foundation. This is the basis for health in the entire body. And if it's unbalanced, then you're going to have ill health in the entire body. There's going to be negative outcomes to this. And it's not something people think about a whole lot. We don't think about enzymatic reactions when we're eating food, except if there's some type of negative outcome. Like eating raw pineapple is an interesting example of this. If you've ever eaten a ton of raw pineapple and your mouth blisters, that's down to an enzyme called bromelain. And what that is, is that it's an enzyme that catalyzes in the amylase and it breaks down protein, which your mouth is obviously protein since you have flesh in there. And so it can you can get sores on your tongue or the roof of your mouth. Um, and then that acid from the pineapple will 
kind of further exacerbate that a little bit. Uh, yeah, and it's just a it's a very common thing. You can mitigate that by drinking a lot of water if you're eating raw pineapple or eating it with some other type of food can sometimes mitigate that as well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's an enzymatic breakdown. A lot of times it can be an uncomfortable one for people that have, you know, hard time eating that type of enzyme. But I mean, that is essentially what's happening in your entire digestive system from your mouth down to your anus. And there's a lot of opportunity for things to not break down properly and cause a lot of dysbiosis. Because when that happens, it will cause the body to change and feed different bacteria to try to assist in that breakdown. Or viruses or protists or archaea, right? So that's when you get a dysbiosis of the gut, when things aren't breaking down as they should be. That's when things like IBS and Crohn start to manifest. It's a dysbiosis of that entire microbiome. And I don't mean to oversimplify any of this because it is so complicated. Depending on the individual, they're going to need vastly different microbes and combinations. It depends on environment. It depends on diet. It depends on stress levels. So it becomes very, very complicated. And the research on this, like I said in the beginning, isn't great. They focus on bacteria, but as we've laid out, there's a lot more to think about. So it's not a clear cut and dry case when it comes to nutrient breakdown in building the blood. Because ultimately, you want to keep the blood built. You want to keep good nutrient breakdown and good end metabolites circulating in the blood. That's how you feed the body. That's how you feed every single tissue and every single cell. The example of pellagra in the late 1800s in the South is one of my favorite examples of nutrient deficiencies and how they affect everything in the body. So pellagra was a vitamin B3 deficiency. Vitamin B3 is niacin. And remember, niacin gets synthesized from the essential amino acid tryptophan. Remember, tryptophan goes into melatonin and serotonin. So those neurotransmitters that we need in our everyday life to regulate mood and sleep. If you're not getting tryptophan and a good breakdown to niacin, vitamin B3 deficiency causes your skin to get kind of boils and blister up and it also causes psychosis. So the people that were just eating corn and before we started fortifying food with niacin, they were going insane, literally insane. These people were becoming schizophrenic because number one, their melatonin and cortisol production was completely altered. And then you throw serotonin production not being efficient and people start to get a bit messed up mentally and that happened super super quickly within a single generation and you see things like these nutritionally when you switch from a well-balanced full-spectrum kingdom approach to nutrition versus one of specific agriculture so in this day and age extreme kind of fad diets are a great example of this a lot of those fad diets can be void of essential amino acids and 
vitamins and minerals that cause major nutrient deficiencies and lead to disease down the road. B vitamins are interesting because they're water soluble. So if you you could go six months maybe and be okay and not feel any chronic effects of B vitamin deficiency, but you lose those very, very quickly. Unlike fat-soluble vitamins, such as vitamin D, they tend to get drawn out of your body very, very quickly. And that's why the the nutritional deficiencies can be so significant. You can go quite a while on fat-soluble vitamins before you need to kind of get them back in the diet before they cause chronic issues. But the water-soluble vitamins, vitamin C is another example, scurvy. People still get scurvy today. We tend to think of it as like kind of an old sailor disease, but it's not. People still get it. So keeping the blood built with these vital nutrients to maintain health should be the end goal to nutrition. You should keep a mindset of, what am I building my blood with? Am I building the blood daily to keep my body regulated and to keep all the systems of the body in check? Or am I going weeks or months or years even with a deficiency? And then you start looking at the differences in the entire microbiome with extreme diets like veganism or carnivore or even keto. There are not only bacterial changes, but there are fungal changes, viral changes, protist changes, archaea changes, right? And this starts to, again, affect the nutrient breakdown in the synthesis that is getting into the blood. It affects blood metabolites, which is another discussion that people don't like to talk about a whole lot. And if you are coming off of a really, really bad diet where you're eating a ton of processed food, those metabolic changes are probably a good thing. But issues do come up if you get decades into these types of diets because there's only, again, so much kind of nutritional discrepancy or nutritional breakdown inabilities that your body can deal with. And it may start really small, but again, those things start to build up, meaning that if you get too extreme on one end of dysbiosis from any of the kingdoms of life that are housed in your microbiome, you could end up with some potentially pretty negative consequences from all that. So in my mind, the best way to approach it nutritionally is by eating all five kingdoms of life. Eat from the animal kingdom, eat from the plant kingdom, eat from the fungal kingdom, eat from bacterial kingdoms, and eat from protist kingdoms. And if you do that, then generally your bases are going to be covered. You're going to be supplying your body and microbiome with diverse populations of species. That's why I came up with this approach, because honestly, the conventional nutrition approach that I learned didn't quite make enough sense to me. It was far more just based on hitting your RDIs, hitting your calories, getting your major food groups in, and, you know, fingers crossed, hopefully that was enough. Hopefully your biology would you know, kind of take care of the rest. And by and large, it does. But it makes a lot more sense to take a strategic approach and know why you're getting those species in your diet to begin with. People know they should eat well-balanced out of different food groups, 
But this is why, because you're supplying your blood and building your blood. The microbiome is just kind of the intermediate that builds the blood. It's what does the work. Does that make sense? It's the workhorse for your body, but the blood is the shuttling mechanism. I started thinking about blood a lot as I was going through my phlebotomy training. And I did that before I got my nutrition degree. But learning how to get blood out of people's veins, how to draw blood, gets you up close and personal. I mean, you're literally extracting blood from people. And you see a lot in that blood. I mean, I'll never forget the one of the first times I ever drew blood out of somebody. There was big fat chunks floating in the tubes of blood that I drew because that person had a high fat meal, you know, probably hours before they went to class. Vein and artery blood differ pretty significantly, not only in the oxygenation level, but in nutrient levels and what they transport. In the phlebotomist world, we would kind of joke and say we're drawing off the dirty blood. So it's all the stuff that is kind of, well, returning to the heart to get oxygenated. And so it kind of picks up everything and it's almost like return waste or something, you know, that uh, that need to get kind of oxygenated again and, and head back out through the arteries. And it's really interesting, you know, when you start actually looking at blood when you spin blood down and you get and you see differences in plasma and serum and red blood cells in a tube. Sometimes serum would be super, super cloudy and some other times it would be really clear. It just depended on people's diet. As a general rule, you would want your blood serum to look pretty clear. I mean, it's always going to be kind of yellowish, but it shouldn't be all foggy and real cloudy. Not that necessarily you would ever see that in a general population, but the blood should be, things should be utilized in the blood. And if they're not getting a proper uptake from the tissues or the cells, then there can be an issue. And that's typically what drives inflammation, is products aren't getting absorbed. So the body thinks you have a bit of a foreign invader in there, and it creates an immune response, which leads to inflammation and sometimes chronic inflammation. You know, that's what happens with permeability in the gut. So really my advice is keep a five kingdom mindset when it comes to nutrition. Again, it's animal, plant, fungi, bacteria, and protist. If you can keep an overall diet of those things in relative balance, then a bunch of supplementation, and things like that, you're not going to need as much. Now, if you know yourself and are honest and know that you're never going to really do that, then supplementation might be a really good tool for you. If you're going to go that route, then I would really highly encourage you to look for whole food type based supplements. You know, I'm a big proponent of things like colostrum, and liver powder. I'm a big proponent of medicinally extracted tinctures from plant material or animal substances. Those things are essentially whole foods, or at least kind of non-derivative, non-kind of laboratory synthetics. And all of that is going to play better in the overall physiology and overall metabolism and end metabolites that your blood gets fed with. If you think about like a water filtration system, that's kind of like your metabolism. You would 
preferably want to start with really clean water to begin with. I would much rather filter water from an alpine lake or stream versus a swamp, right? You're going to get a better product. Same thing kind of goes with your digestion and and metabolite products. You want to start with good, clean, whole foods to supply your blood. You can do it through synthetics and medications, but it typically causes side effects. And it's typically not the best way to be getting your body balanced out. It wouldn't be my first choice anyway. Obviously, you you have to do what you have to do to stay alive. But if you can return to baseline with good, proper nutrition, then a lot of that stuff you're not going to need as much. And you'll notice I am keeping these recommendations fairly vague, and I'm doing that on purpose because depending on the individual, it varies drastically depending on environment, stress level, genetics, and a ton of other factors. If you're super curious about this approach, I am more than happy to help you. We could sit down, go through your whole diet. I could make recommendations on incorporating a five kingdom approach, kind of rebalancing things and getting things stabilized out. I mean, that's what I do, you know, and chances are you know when you feel the best, you know kind of what foods light you up inside and make you feel good, and you could explore those things. But if you frame it in the contexts of five kingdoms, then I bet you could find a combination for yourself with some experimenting. And you may need a little help along the way, and that's okay. Who doesn't need help? That would be a lot better than flip-flopping from extreme diet to extreme diet and counting calories and taking an approach that in some circumstances is lacking great nutrition and diversity of species in the microbiome. It's going to lead vast more end metabolites that are supplying your blood and tissues than a restrictive species diet. This is my approach. This is where I'm coming from with it. I think it needs to be talked about more. It's not just about probiotics and prebiotics. It's a lot more complicated than that. It's a lot more nuanced than that, and it's a lot more individual than that. This isn't a one-size-fits-all deal, and it's understandable why people have so many questions, and you should be questioning. You should be questioning yourself, be questioning others. Again, you're the only one that knows when you feel the best and when you feel like crap. And if you start paying attention to when you feel good, then it's going to be a lot easier to approach it from that angle than somebody else's recommendation. I only want to go off of when somebody feels the best and capitalize on that rather than completely changing everything that they're eating and restricting what they're eating. Restrictive diets don't work. They never have. They never will. So if you have gotten advice from somebody in the past on restricting certain food groups or certain things because of X, Y, or Z, can you approach that differently? I mean, obviously, if if you have major imbalances, if you have major allergies, something like that, yes, then that's not bad advice. But a lot of times, going on a, a diet where you're cutting out food groups and you're cutting out calories or whatever it may be, 
that's usually not a sustainable option for people. It's not a sustainable, it's not a sustainable option mentally or physiologically because the microbiome needs those things. Your blood needs those things. And if it's not getting them, you're going to end up with some metabolic issues. You're going to become metabolically unhealthy. That's what meta being metabolically unhealthy or healthy means. It means the blood is supplied with adequate nutrition. That's what being metabolically healthy means. And if you want hard data on this, get a blood metabolite test. It's very simple. It's just a prick of the finger. There are companies that will send you an at-home kit. You just lance at the tip of your finger, supply them with a few drops of blood. They, you send it back to them. They analyze it, shoot you an email with a bunch of data, usually like 12 or 15 pages of data. And that's the type of data I like working off of as a nutritionist because I can see some hard data and what's actually in the blood. I don't like stool samples as much. It can be useful if there is something very specific that you're looking for. But again, I would much rather know what's going on in the blood than in the stool. Blood metabolites tests really aren't that expensive. There's quite a few companies that do them out there now. And like I said, if you're super curious and you kind of want to know where your blood levels are at on a metabolite level, it's a great thing to invest in. But once you get results, it can be hard to parse through the pages of information and know how to apply it to your daily life. And that's where somebody like me could come in and help you or any other nutritionist for that matter if they're looking at this stuff, which they should be in my opinion. Because really that's the thing about nutrition is there's so many, so many different types of foods that you can get into your body. You know, we know that timing makes a difference, whether it's intermittent fasting type of stuff or a limited feeding window type of stuff. But at the end of the day, we're all eating food and it's going to depend on what we're eating, who we are, where we're at in our lives, what type of life stage we're in. And that's a lot of stuff to consider. And there's a lot of variables. And so if you can get a bit more individualized in thinking a little bit more holistically through the gastrointestinal system and through the microbiome and taking a wide approach, incorporating all of the species that you need to feed your body and your blood, you're going to be a lot better off than most people. All right, I think that'll do it for this week in building the blood. Thank you again so much for listening. You guys have a great week. Stay well, stay healthy. I'll talk to you guys this next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to talk to me personally, go to ancestralelements.com slash community to get access to the forum. We go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail, and you can connect with other listeners. Thank you.